and, and what our culture has taught us to do is to just stop producing bad fruit and try harder to produce good fruit. But here's a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. I cannot, by direct moral effort, give myself new motives. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. So here's the main idea from Ephesians 2 tonight, that good fruit comes from continually trusting in Jesus. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from the inside, because what comes from the inside? What did Jesus tell us yesterday? Bad fruit. Bad fruit comes from the inside. So it doesn't come from within us. It comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. And specifically what we'll see in Ephesians 2 is that this good fruit comes about as a result of the power of God. So here's the number one thing that I want us to get tonight. Is that it's God's power, not our own, that's our only hope for transformation. It's God's power, not our own, that is our only hope for transformation. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We're not going to read the whole section. We'll kind of read a little bit as we go. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what we see in verses 1 through 3 is that we naturally produce bad fruit that flows from spiritually dead hearts. We naturally produce bad fruit that flows from spiritually dead hearts. Hearts. And so if we produce bad fruit and the power of God is our only hope, I want us to see three specific reasons in these verses why God's power is necessary for us to be transformed. Why we can't look to ourselves as the power for the power of transformation. He starts by saying, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. God's power is necessary for transformation. Because God's power is necessary to overcome the power of death. How many of you have ever been to a, a funeral before? Pretty much all of you. Uh, I was in 10th grade when my grandfather passed away. And uh, I remember it was actually the first time that I ever touched a dead body. Uh, he was there uh, in the casket for the viewing of our family. We were all, all very sad and emotional. And uh, I, I laid my hand on his chest uh, as kind of just a, a way of honoring him and, and telling him that I loved him for the final time. And it's different than touching someone who's alive. How much power does a dead person have? None. What kind of things can a dead person do? None. What, what kind of things can a dead person hear? Nothing. What kind of things can the mind of a dead person understand? Nothing. And this is what Paul says in verse 1, is our spiritual state apart from Christ. We are unable to hear, unable to understand, unable to discern anything spiritually good because we are spiritually dead. Paul mentions this 
Same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 12. Here's what he says. This is, a, this is heavy teaching for Paul, something that's not readily embraced even in the church today. Here's what he says. Now we, that is believers, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, this is the key part. The natural person, that is the person who's apart from Christ, they're in their natural sinful state, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The implication being that the Spirit of God is who awakens our heart, who brings us to life and allows us to understand and believe spiritual things. So if we were to use this setting as an illustration tonight, what, what Paul is saying in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians is that for, for those of you who are unbelievers out here, I might as well be preaching to a graveyard. Like me preaching to spiritually dead people is like me walking to a graveyard where, where there's physical dead bodies and saying, wake up, come to life. Now how silly is that? That's silly. Unless there's a power beyond my own that has the power to bring the dead to life. And that's the power of God. We saw it when he raised Jesus from the dead. And we have the promise as believers that that same thing is coming for us. So God's power is necessary because God alone can overcome the power of death. But God's power is necessary due to the strength of our adversary. Look at verse 2. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So our disobedience isn't as simple as a choice that we make to disobey God. That is not putting enough weight on the sinful condition of the human heart. In part, our disobedience is a result of spiritual forces of darkness that exist in our present world. Flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul is talking about his gospel that he preaches, the gospel of God, the gospel of grace. And here's what he says in verse 3 about those who can't see it, those who don't believe the gospel. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, meaning if, even if people don't believe it, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So not only are we spiritually dead, unable to discern and believe spiritual truth, but the devil has put a blindfold over our dead eyes. It's like a double dose of blindness. We're spiritually dead, and in addition to that, the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the truth. 
So the, the presence of evil forces in the world is a reality, and these forces aren't neutral. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil is prowling around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. The scriptures are overwhelmingly clear at the state of our sin. And we might be tempted to think that that, that kind of that, that we're not responsible for it as a result, that we've got these sinful hearts, well, I don't control what I do, or, or the devil made me do it. That was a famous song in the, what, adults, 1980s? Said before that, anybody know? No? Buddy Clark? Yep. Nope, all right. The devil made me do it. It's a song, promise. We might be tempted to think that, that we can sort of pass the buck, but, but look at verse 3. Paul says that we carry out the desire of the body and the mind. So, so we carry out our sin. We have no one to blame, no one to hold responsible other than ourselves. And verse 3 describes our sins as sin of the body, external, and the mind, internal. So our disobedience reaches into every corner of our being. There's no hope of us getting out of this. I hope you realize that it's, it's certainly not going to come from within you. Your power isn't sufficient to free you from the bondage of sin and deceitfulness of Satan. But the third thing we see in verse 3 is that God's power is necessary to overcome the power of God's wrath. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Sin ignites the wrath of God. This is not a very popular teaching in our culture, but it is a reality. And if you'll stop for a second and think about it, it's actually a good thing. It, it points to a good aspect of God's character, and that is that he is just. A good judge never allows, never allows the guilty party to go free without punishment. If they do, they're not a good judge. And if a single judge in America did that, they would be kicked off the bench immediately. In the same way, God must punish those who sin against him. Within that, though, I, I, I want to be careful that, that we don't attribute to God something that he doesn't deserve. If you have this picture of God, that, that he's up there in the heavens, and he's just got this menacing smile on his face, waiting to strike down everyone who sins against him. That is not God's heart towards sin. Listen to Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? See, God does not look forward to pouring out his wrath on sin God desires to be merciful. God desires that we would turn from our sin and live. So it's not something that God does for entertainment. It's the result of your sin and my sin. And here's the thing about God's wrath. His divine wrath can only be removed by a divine sacrifice. You can't earn the removal of wrath with good living. You can't hope for the removal of wrath because you're trying to change from the, your, your outside behavior. There's only one way for God's wrath to be removed. And that is that he poured it out on his son on the cross. And we, by faith, trust in Jesus who takes our, God's wrath for us. So this is us, verses 1 through 3, dead 
disobedient, and doomed. But praise God for the next two words in verse 4. But God. Notice, notice, it doesn't say, but you. This whole second half of this, of this passage isn't going to point us to ourselves as, as the solution, the hope for our problem. It doesn't say, but you. It says, but God. What did God do? He gave us new hearts. Good fruit is the result of new hearts. Let's look at verses 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I want us to highlight some specific aspects of God's grace in these verses. The first is that it's God's grace that saved us. Look at verse 5 and verse 8. He repeats that phrase twice. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. So, so what are we saved from? I remember uh, when I was in elementary school, I was in chapel at a Christian school with a kid who was sitting next to a kid who was not a believer. His name was Roger. And uh, I, I asked Roger that day, I don't really know why, uh, Roger, are you saved? Have you been saved? And he was like, what do you mean, like from drowning? <laughs> and we were sitting in a chapel service. It didn't really make much sense. But he, he just had no Christian background. He had no understanding of, of what the salvation was from. What has God saved us from? Well, it's everything we just talked about. He saved us from spiritual death. He saved us from destructive disobedience. And he saved us from the wrath of of God. And all of this is the result of God's grace toward us. It's not anything that we earn with our good behavior. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. Verse 8 says it's the free gift of God. Not only has God's grace saved us, God's grace was motivated by his love and mercy. Look at this in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. So here's what we like to do because we're Americans. <laughs> we like to reflect on the gospel and we like to, to think about how, how wonderful we are and how deserving we are of all of the blessings that God has given us. So, so yeah, God saved us and we're, we're all about that. We're all about the gospel. But if we really dig down to the depths of our hearts, it's because we think we deserve the saving. We're, we're good people. Why wouldn't God want to save us? But you've got to notice in this passage it doesn't say anything about us that motivated God to save us. Remember verses 1 through 3, we were dead, disobedient, and doomed. What Brett read earlier in Titus 3, that's the motivation for God saving us. It's his goodness and kindness that caused him to initiate this rescue plan. So salvation is a testimony to God's character, not to ours. Salvation is to make him look glorious, not us. And it says it in verse 7. 
The reason he did all this was so that in the coming ages, in the future, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. God saved us not so that we could show off, but so that he could show off. Show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And here's what makes his grace so immeasurable. It's that God's grace meets us where we are. This is my favorite phrase in the whole passage. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. This is amazing that God being rich in mercy, so he's rich in mercy and he has a great love for us when? Does it say when we became good people? No, it's even when we were dead in our trespasses that God poured out his mercy and loved us with a great love. So nobody's perfect and nobody has to be perfect for God to love you. Christians are not people who who have their lives together. They aren't people that that God has blessed because they've honored him. It's even in our sin, even in our trespasses, that God has poured out his mercy and love. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And part of this grace, necessary part of this grace, is that God's grace joined us to Jesus Christ. We see this threefold repetition in verses 5 and 6 that that these actions that God took to connect us to Christ it says he made us alive together with Christ verse 5 verse 6 it says he raised us up with him verse 6 then says he seated us with him in the heavenly places so so why is Paul making sure that we know that we are connected to Christ that we've been joined to Christ how many of you remember the the baptism of Jesus Matthew chapter 3. Y'all, y'all know that scene. A lot of you, if you've grown up in church, you know that story. Uh, so when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and, and lands on Jesus. And then a voice from heaven comes. And does anyone know what the voice from heaven says? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The reason Paul makes sure that we understand that we are joined to Christ is because God is not pleased with us apart from Christ. But in Christ, God is pleased with us. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. God looks at Jesus and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if we have trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are joined to him and God looks at us and doesn't see us as dead, disobedient, and doomed. He sees us as he sees his own son and he approves of us. He is well pleased with us in spite of our sin and in spite of our shortcomings. He's well pleased with us because of Christ. And we see that this gift of God's grace is received through faith. Verse 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. How many of you have done an escape room before? Pretty exciting, right? Uh, Two years ago, I think, I went with the uh, senior guys and we went to an escape room. And the the story, the, the, the theme that we were in was that there was a serial killer. Uh, and, and he had killed all these people and had left his apartment, and we had to sneak into his apartment 
while he was gone where we would find the name of the next person that he was going to kill. And so we would find that name. We would uh, get out of his room in just enough time to call the police so that we could save the next victim. So it was very exciting. It, it, was, it was thrilling. Uh, we had a, a lot of funny stories along the way. But the whole goal of an escape room is what? Okay, I probably phrased that question wrong. Yes, that's true. What are you looking for while you're locked in the room? The key, right? Where are the, where are the clues pointing you? The key. So, so we, we go through the hour-long escape room. We, we find the key with just under a minute left. Uh, we have a guy who's trying to get it in the lock, and his hands are shaking so bad he just can't get it. But, but the whole point of the escape room is to find the key because when you get the key, you can open the door. And what do you open the door to? Freedom. Freedom. Faith is the key by which we gain access to God's grace. And the difference between God and the escape room is that you don't have to work for it. You don't have to spin your wheels trying to discover or or to do whatever it is that he wants you to do in order to receive this grace, this freedom It's made available to us by faith. And here's what faith is. I want to define it for us. Faith is trusting that only Jesus can forgive you of your sins and make you holy before God. John 14, 6 says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Faith is believing that statement about Jesus. Only in him. Can we have a relationship with the Father? Only in Him can we have our sins forgiven. So, this is the crucial question for us to ask. I understand God's grace. I understand how sinful that I was and how wonderful it is that God has saved me. How does all of that actually bring inside-out transformation in my life? Here's how. When we believe Ephesians 2 1 through 9, we see who we are, dead, disobedient, and doomed. And we see God's love for us in spite of who we are. And in that moment, something supernatural happens where we see the reality of our sin and we see this claim that God loves us in spite of our sin and we say to ourselves, me? How could you love me? Me, I'm a liar. Me, I'm a deceiver. Me, my my heart is filled with lust. Me, I'm selfish. Me, I hate my parents. God, how could you love me? And in that moment, when God's love invades us right at the very center of our need, our heart responds with every cell in our being that we will follow him and trust him and obey him for the rest of our lives. So where does transformation come from? 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. Transformation doesn't come when we try really hard to be a good person. Transformation comes when we see the love that God has for us in spite of our sin. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, God promises his people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Transformation comes from the new heart that God gives us. And all of this is a result of what God has done. It's God's work, not our own. So not only does good fruit come from new hearts that are provided by God himself, but here's a crucial thing that we must understand. Good fruit continues by trusting in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 10. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, is there an expectation that believers in Jesus will produce good fruit? Yes. Why? Because we are his workmanship. He has created us new. And what has God created us for? It says it right there in the verse. He's created us in Christ Jesus for good works. So many of us may have experienced before what, what we call the camp high. You experience it at camp. You may experience it at 180. You may experience it from fall retreat. So we have these big mountaintop moments. And, and we make all these promises to ourselves about how we're going to change. And within two weeks, we've broken all of them. Anybody experience that? I got both hands up because I did it every year in student ministry when I was a teenager. So here's the question, man. I, I really care about this question because this week doesn't exist in isolation. Our hope and prayer is that this week at camp will fuel something in your life and in your faith that lasts, that carries on long beyond this weekend. So how do we continue producing good works? Not just that we make promises to ourselves about how we'll do it at camp, but that we actually continue in doing it. John 15, 4 and 5. These are the words of Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. How do we continue producing good works? How do we continue being transformed? We abide in Jesus. How do we do it? This is the hard part. I'm going to take Burgess's three things from this morning and, and talk about them quickly here. Three ways that we abide in Jesus. These are all very practical. The first is prayer. Here's something that's got to happen if, we're, if, if prayer is going to help us abide in Jesus. Prayer is not just asking God for stuff. That's not how we use prayer. It's not the only way in which we use prayer, where we just get our laundry list of things and we ask God to do it for us. Prayer is time spent talking to God about your problems and talking to God about your struggles and asking him for his help. Spending time with him like you would a friend or a mentor. And when you do that, guess what? It works. You change. God will grow you and produce the good works in you that he desires for you. So prayer is number one. Bible reading is number two. Here's how we have to stop reading our Bibles if we want to actually abide in Jesus. Bible reading is not just about learning and knowledge. 
A lot of the reasons that you guys don't like to read your Bible is because you think that you already know it all. One, that's not true. But number two, even if that was true, there's a way to read your Bible that doesn't just increase your knowledge, but actually changes your life. And this is through meditation and application. So as you're reading your Bible, you're you're asking yourself this question, how does my life need to change as a result of what I've read in the Bible today? And pray that God would align your life with his word. And as you do that, guess what will happen? You'll change. You'll transform. You'll grow from the inside out. Third and finally, fellowship with other believers. Here's how we have to stop treating fellowship with other believers in a way that's not helpful. When we come to camp or when we hang out at a growth group leader's house with all of our growth group members, we're not just there to have fun. Now, that's a part of what we do. That's a part of what Christian fellowship is. But the Greek word for fellowship has much more significance to it than that. It means openness, honesty, and transparency about our lives. That we truly share our lives together. We expose our weaknesses to one another. We pray for one another. We hold each other accountable. We love each other sacrificially sacrificially and unconditionally. And guess what? As we do those things, what do you think happens? We change. We grow. We're transformed from the inside out. So the way that we continue producing good fruit is by abiding in Jesus through prayer, through his word, and through fellowship with other believers. So, two questions in closing. First, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you recognize that you're dead, disobedient, and doomed apart from him, and that Christ alone is your only hope for salvation? And the Bible tells us what to do. When we get to that moment where we recognize ourselves for who we are and we recognize God's love for us in spite of that, and here's what the Bible tells us to do. So so listen, if you're in here tonight and you're not a Christian, but you want to be and you're wondering how to do that, repent and believe. Confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. So becoming a Christian means confessing that uh, that we are sinful, And that we are in need of a Savior. We confess that to God and we confess that to one another. And then we believe, we trust. And what that means is we look to Christ alone for our salvation. We stop trying to pretty ourselves up on the outside and we trust in what Christ has already done to forgive us of our sins. And when we repent and believe, when we confess our sins to God and others, we're saved. So are you trusting in Jesus in that way? Follow-up question. For those of you who are here and you are believers, are you abiding in Jesus? Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Notice the word heart in there. It doesn't say keep your actions with all vigilance. It says keep your heart with all vigilance. This is what we talked about last night, that it's from the heart, from our affections, that our actions flow. So we're to keep our heart. Other translations say, guard our heart. Question, why would something need to be guarded? You can answer me. Why would something need to be guarded? To protect it. Why? Why would it need to be protected? What? 
to keep it safe because it could get taken away. So here's the reality that we have to accept about ourselves. Our hearts are prone to wonder. The world has no shortage of things that would try to steal our hearts from the Lord. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. We're going to address that tomorrow night. I'm talking about the world shifting our focus away from hoping in Jesus and hoping in temporary earthly things that don't matter at all. So, we need to rethink what it means to to trust in Jesus. A lot of times, we we just think of that as a one-time moment. Yes, I, I have trusted in Jesus. But when we think about it that way, What that lends itself to is this one-time experience of salvation, and now that I've done it, it's over, and I can go on continue living my life the way that I want to. And maybe that's not sinful, but it's just earthly. You just waste your life on things that don't matter. And so the question, are you abiding in Jesus, is really a question of, are you continually trusting in Jesus? Your salvation isn't just this one-time thing where you decide to trust in Jesus and then you drop it from there and go do your own thing. It's that you trusted in Jesus and from every day there on out, you continue trusting in Jesus. So I want to encourage you tonight. First, if you've never trusted in Jesus before, I want you to talk to your small group leader about repenting of your sin and believing in what Christ has done for salvation. And second, If you have trusted in Jesus in the past, but you know, like Brett was saying earlier, that you are not currently trusting him, you're not abiding in him, you're struggling with sin, or or maybe you know that you're overvaluing things that don't matter at all, like your cell phone or social media or video games, then I want you to talk to your small group leader about that as well. I want tonight to be a night of repentance where we're turning from our sin and we're trusting in Jesus. And for some of you, that may be the very first time. And for others of you, it may be that that you just haven't been trusting him today. And you need to repent of leaning on yourself and leaning on your external behavior for other people to, to like you. And you need to drop that today and repent it and remind yourself of the gospel and look to Christ who alone can save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 are hard verses for us. Not only because of the picture they paint for us before Christ, but God, that that that's a, a description of the flesh that continues to fight against us even after we've been saved. So God, we, we confess how naturally we produce bad fruit. And Lord, we pray that you take our bad fruit and turn it to good fruit. We know, Lord, that that we don't do that from the outside in. We don't do it by trying to make ourselves look good on the outside. It comes from the transformational power of the gospel that you, a holy and righteous God, have loved sinful sinners in spite of their sin. And so with that truth, take root in our hearts tonight. And would it change us? Would it transform us from the inside out? I pray that even as we sing, you would be cultivating in our hearts a love for you. I pray that in our small groups, you would be 
Uh, you'd allow us to be open and honest with ourselves and with others. And we pray, God, that, that today would be the day of salvation for some. In Jesus' name, amen.